Good morning, everybody. I'm going to be continuing our series called Summer in the Psalms. We want to teach you uh, how the Psalms work. There are different types of Psalms. They have different structures. The Psalms have themes. And we really want to unlock this book for you because it can be a source of real restoration, encouragement for your soul in different situations and different occasions in life. Now, for most of my Christian life, I had a weird relationship with the book of Psalms. I didn't, I didn't quite get it. And usually it was because it was very vague. I didn't know who the author was, or if I knew who the author was, I didn't know what the occasion was for the song, or the details were left out, very open-ended, like, who are we talking about? When did this happen? What happened? Why did it happen? Like, who are you so mad at? It's hard to know because they don't include that information. And so it just made it difficult for me to connect. It was kind of disorienting. And um, that was the way it was for a while. I mean, I would read the Psalms and think about them. And there were some favorite Psalms I had, like 23 and 19, and memorize some verses. But overall, it just wasn't a book that I was really, you know, grooving with. And so uh, that went on for a while until I learned some important things about the Psalms, some of the things that we want to teach you in this series over the summer. One of the most important things that I learned that really helped me was the reason why these details, these specific details are left out is so that you and I, as the worshiping community, can put them in. God wants us to add into the general themes our own specific experiences. Our own experiences, our struggles, our victories are supposed to fill in the details uh, that match the themes of the psalms that we're singing. So you should fill in the details of these psalms. This is a feature, not a bug. This is, was, this is how it's designed. Remember, the psalms are not some like private diary entry from some Hebrew teenager that we discovered somewhere in like a cave. These psalms are carefully crafted liturgies. These are designed to lead congregations to worship. And so if you're super specific in the details, you exclude a lot of people. But if you, if you generalize and make it about the themes, then many people can sing these songs because they fill in the details from their own lives. That, that was very helpful for me. For example, in Psalm 98, which is the one we're going to look at today, it talks about salvation. Now, who's being saved and where were they saved and what were they saved from in Psalm 98? I don't know. Neither do you. But I know how I was saved. I know all the different things that God saved in my life. And I can praise God for those things. Praise you for this and praise you for that. So as I read the psalmist say, praise the Lord for his salvation, I can say, yes, God, praise you for saving me like you did on May 4th, 20, uh, 2001. Praise you for saving my mom and my wife and my children. And thank you for saving this and saving that. And please save this person and, and save this thing. And I fill in the details and the psalm becomes a thematic guide to help me pray and sing. And singing was a surprise to me. I don't know if you know this, but the psalms are supposed to be sung. Now, that might be funny to you because psalm means song, but I just never did that. I didn't grow up in the church. I don't have a church background. And it wasn't until recently that I discovered that People have been singing psalms for like a long time. So I found an app which puts all the psalms to music and they're slightly edited so that they fit and they rhyme. And uh, it's been great because as I sing these psalms, uh, I feel the truth. I don't just think it, but I feel it. So, for example, in 2020, there was a lot of injustice and corruption that I saw and I was mad about it. And it was making me frustrated. And at the time I was singing psalms and I came across psalms where the author seemed to be talking about the same things I was feeling. 
And so I would fill in the details of my life and experience and pray those things to God. And I would tell God how angry I was and frustrated, just like the psalmist was doing. So it was okay. And then in the middle, the psalmist would talk about God's faithfulness in the past and his justice and his love. And I would talk to God about that too, how I had seen that and I believed it. And, and, and then at the end, the psalmist is praising God. And I would get to the end and I'd be praising God. And I'd be processing this poison through singing the psalms. And it has this kind of resonance. It's like a song that gets stuck in your head, you know. And the more that you pray through and sing through these situations that you face, you remember it next time. The next time you see injustice or corruption, you remember how you dealt with it last time. The hope that you got to at the end of singing towards God the last time, that's still there this time. And it's not so depressing because you remember, oh yeah, yeah, I've experienced this before and God is going to be good and God is going to take care of me and God has helped me remember the truth. So singing and praying through the Psalms, it is a crucial way for you to cleanse your soul of a lot of the gunk that you collect in life. And you can do this easily. There's lots of apps now that have songs that you can sing. There's contemporary artists like Shane and Shane, Brian Suave, who are putting the Psalter to music. In fact, we're going to sing Psalm 98 at Church in the Valley on Sunday. So I really encourage you to do that. Now, today we're going to be looking at a kind or a type of psalm. The type we're looking at is called hymns. These are the happy ones, right? In the book of Psalms, there's two groups, sad ones and happy ones. Happy ones are hymns, and they're songs of praise, and they have a structure. All the hymns follow the same basic structure. And that's helpful to know so that you can interpret what you're reading. The first part is a call to praise. The author is calling the people of Israel, the nations, all of creation to praise the Lord. The second part is the reason for praise. Here's what God has done while we're praising him. Some attribute or quality or thing that God did. And the third uh, part of the hymn is a call to praise a second time. So it's called to praise, the reason for calling to praise, and a call to praise again. That's the structure. And we're going to look at Psalm 98, which does exactly that. And it's helpful. Now, I like to summarize the Psalms, and I have included in your handout a summary of Psalm 98. I'd encourage you as you read through the Psalms, especially if they're short, to try to look at the key words and come up with your own short summary. That will help you remember what this one's all about. So that when you're going through those things and you're facing that situation, you can pull that song out and you can sing it, you can pray through it, and it can really help build your faith. Now, what I want to do is I want to look at Psalm 98 for the rest of our time. And the way we're going to do it is we're going to look at three stanzas out of order. There are three parts or three stanzas to Psalm 98. And we're going to start with the third stanza, then we're going to go to the first stanza, and we're going to finish with the second stanza. I think this will better help us kind of meditate and understand what the psalmist is saying. This is a hymn, a psalm of praise. The writer is happy with God, happy with others. He's pumped up. So let's start with stanza three. I've titled it, The Lord is Judge. Let the sea roar and all that fill it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the river clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Now, I chose this stanza to read first because it's the end and it's where everything is leading and it's the climactic thought and it's weird. The psalmist says, hey, everybody, guess what? All of you outside, all of you in here, every creature under heaven, the Lord is coming to judge the earth. And so we should all. And what would you say should be the end of that sentence? Run. Hide, find a lawyer, 
right? You would not expect him to say, shout, praise, rejoice. He's pumped about the judgment of God. Who would be happy about the Lord coming in judgment? Well, the answer is, if you think about it, if you meditate on it, victims, people who are oppressed, people who have been exploited, people who are slaves who are being abused in spiritual darkness, people who have suffered for a long time, who can't get their day in court, who keep having their just cause dismissed, people who have been mistreated by the powerful and the wealthy. That's what the day of the Lord means. Because in this psalm, you saw in verse 9, it says that he judges the world with righteousness and equity. That means he judges rightly and fairly. Finally, a judge is going to hear my case. Finally, somebody who's going to make these wrongs right. Like the persistent widow in Jesus' parable, who keeps asking this wicked judge for justice until finally he gives it to her. That's how we, God's people, feel when he comes to judge. We rejoice when he comes to judge. Because when the Lord Jesus comes to judge, he is vindicated. Who he is, who we say he is, because he told us who he is, the Lord of lords and the King of kings, will be seen and acknowledged by everyone. He gets glory. He wipes away wickedness. He makes right the wrongs. He straightens out what's crooked. And we look forward to that. God loves that, and we love it too. But as I was meditating on this part of the psalm, this kind of crescendo thought, it occurred to me that not everybody looks forward to the judgment of God. I don't even like talking about it. I mean, I'm preaching for a living, giving sermons, and it's very uncomfortable to talk about the wrath of God and the judgment of God. And as I thought about why it makes me anxious, it's because I feel inadequate. And I fear God. I know his wrath. I know how terrifying it is. And the things that the Lord has said about the coming judgment, they're not fun to think about. When I think about the people that I love in my life who have rejected Christ or won't hear him, and where they're headed, it it just makes me sick. This week I was talking to a non-Christian friend and was telling them about Christ. And he basically said, why should I even pay attention to this? Why should I even be interested in this? And the answer is because you are going to stand before God and he is going to judge you. He is your creator and judge. This is who he is. He has always been this. He's revealed this to you. He has been the judge in the past. He is the judge in the present. He is the judge in the future. This is the truth about who God is. In the past, he judged Egypt. He destroyed that nation and their gods in front of the whole world. He judged Jerusalem, his own capital city, twice. And when the Lord Jesus told them that he was coming in judgment, if they didn't repent... He wept. It broke his heart. He told them about the judgment to come and the wrath of God, but he loved them and he wanted them to be saved. He wanted them to be escaping. But they refused. And two million Jews died in the judgment. But the Christians who believed Christ and put their faith in him, they were saved because they they fled from Jerusalem when the Roman army surrounded Jerusalem. The Romans themselves, they were destroyed. They were judged by the Lord. Rome did not collapse because of economics or the natural law or karma. Rome collapsed. It was destroyed because the Lord Jesus came in judgment on that empire. He said he would do it in the book of Daniel, 800 years before it happened. He said he would do it in the book of Revelation, 400 years before it happened. The Lord is the judge. We saw it in the past and not just the ancient past. Who do you think destroyed the evil empires of the 20th century? The tyrannies that sprung up all over this world. It was the Lord Jesus who judged them for their sinfulness and wickedness. And he is judging our nation today. 
the chaos and corruption, the, the destruction, the division, the debt, all of it is the Lord judging us and giving us over, letting us go after the darkness and after the sin that we as a society love. And unless we turn and repent, there's no hope for this nation. And it's not just corporate judgment. The Lord judges each and every person. When you die, you will face the Lord. He has said this plainly to us. We all know this is true. I was talking to a guy who's in his 70s, and he's not a Christian. And I asked him, do you believe that you're going to face the Lord in judgment? That when you die, you'll stand before God in judgment? He said, yeah. This is not a Christian, but there's just a sense in which you know that you're going to give an account to your life for your life to God. And he tells us in Hebrews, he says it plainly. He says, and just as it appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, that's where we're headed. And so when the psalmist rejoices in the judgment of God, it makes me think, but what about those people who haven't received the salvation? And why? Why don't we talk about it? Why don't we feel comfortable facing it squarely, the wrath of God, the judgment of God? And I think there's two big reasons. I think the first big reason we don't talk about it and think about it, and we don't want to accept it, is because we don't handle or we don't know the truth about God, specifically who he tells us he is. We don't know about the holiness of God. This is not a word that we use in our society, but God is holy. And this is extremely important in understanding why God is so angry, why God's wrath is so hot, because he is absolutely good itself. There is nothing evil or corrupt in God. God hates sin. He hates evil. He hates wickedness. These things disgust him and they offend him to his core. He is a holy, pure God, and he cannot allow wickedness to go unpunished. He has to judge wickedness. He has to punish evil. And the problem is you and I, all of us, are wicked and evil. Not in comparison to your friend, not in comparison to Jeffrey Dahmer, not in comparison to your own personal standard, but in comparison to the standard that God has for us. And this is the second problem we have, why we have a hard time with the judgment of God. Because we don't know who we are. We don't believe what God tells us about ourselves. You see, God made us to be his image bearers. We're supposed to be little reflections of him. We're his offspring. And he created us to be full of love and righteousness and justice and goodness, just like he has. But we are not. We have sinned and we have turned our backs and we have chased after evil things. We are full of bitterness and unforgiveness, hatred. We lust. We scheme. Come on, be honest. We're selfish and proud. We hold grudges and we don't forgive people. These are sins that we commit all the time. And God has written his moral code on our hearts. It's not like we don't know what's right and wrong. I mean, if you just put a tape recorder around someone's neck and it only recorded all the times that they judge someone else by some standard that they have, and then you simply applied that standard to them, they would fall short. We, we violate our conscience all the time. We do what we know is wrong, and we don't do what we know is right. These are sins. Sins done in the presence and in the face of God. These are crimes against the God of the universe, who is holy. And yet we want to tell him, hey, when I die, we should have fellowship. We should be just fine. We're going to be good. Yeah, you're totally holy. You're totally pure. You're totally righteous. You're in consuming fire, but I'm, I'm good just being there with you. How's that going to work? God is pure. He's a consuming fire. And we are corrupt like dead wood. 
we would burn up in an instant. The only way we can be in fellowship with God is if he changes us, if he cleanses us, if he makes us new things. And that's what he's doing in Christ. But if we won't accept what he says about us, about our sinfulness, and about him, his holiness, then we don't understand why judgment is coming. And we get stiff-necked, we get hard-hearted, and we don't want to hear about it. And then we die and we face him. And what the Lord Jesus warns us of happens. The Lord Jesus gives us sober warnings. He says in Matthew 13, The Son of Man, at the judgment, will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. God will throw every man, woman, and child who has not been forgiven in Christ into the fire. And you think, how could that be? How, how's that, how's that fair? How's that right? Because he is the holy, just judge of all mankind. And he cannot abide evil. Now, you don't have to have this. This doesn't have to be your future. But you have to accept the truth about who you are and who he is. I remember I was talking to a friend in college couple years after I became a Christian and I was really excited about the Lord saving me and I was sharing Christ with her, me and my friend Matt. She's Catholic, Catholic background and she kept saying how, you know what, we just have to do our best and God's going to love us and when we die, he's going to forgive us and, you know, God doesn't send good people to hell and, you know, God, God's good with us and, and just kind of typical stuff. We kept saying, no, this is not true. This is not what God says. He says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody. There is no righteous person. Not according to the standard that God sets for us. And if we don't repent and receive from God the forgiveness he's freely offering us in Christ, then all we're doing is standing there by ourselves and saying, well, I guess I'm guilty. And we're telling her this, and she begins to get angry, and she begins to cry. Because this is just not what she believes. And we don't know what we're doing, so we just kind of back off. We, you know, We're 19, we're not trying to upset her. And I'm thinking, maybe I did something wrong. And maybe I should have talked about it. And two days later, I found out that she had actually gone forward at a local evangelical church, and she had received Christ for the first time. She confessed her sins, she acknowledged her guilt before God, and she received the free forgiveness that God is offering in Christ. And God reminded me of that this week, because I don't like talking about this. And it reminds me, I'm not here to edit the mail. Our job is to deliver the mail as Christians. And the coming judgment of God is a real thing. And there are many people in churches who think they're Christians, but they're not. Because they think that their eternal life, their salvation comes by birth. That because their parents are Christians, they're Christians. Or because they go to church and they serve and they give, that they're gonna, they, the relationship with God is fine. But they do not know Him. They have not received His forgiveness. They have not put their faith in Christ. Your attendance cannot save you. Your giving cannot save you. Your serving cannot give, save you. Your good work cannot save you. So what does save you? To be saved from the judgment that the psalmist is praising, you have to repent of your old life. You have to forsake all of your sins. And you have to turn from your lust and your passions and receive God's forgiveness. You say, yes, I'm a sinner. I agree with you. I hate it. Save me. Wash me. I don't even know how I'm going to change. I don't know how I'm going to break this addiction and change this habit. And I, there's things in me I don't even see. But God, you see them and I, in my heart of hearts, I ask for you to save me. And when you do that, you're his. And you're his now, and you're his forever. You give your whole life over to the Lord Jesus. You follow him wherever he leads. You trust him and him alone. The way that Abraham trusted him when he left his father and mother and everything he knew to go to a land 
and a life that he didn't know. You trust him the way Moses left riches and royalty in Egypt to follow the Lord into the desert. You trust him the way Daniel followed the Lord into the lion's den. This is the faith that saves. A faith that says, I give you my whole life. Have you done that? Because when you do that, you go from death to life. You go from enemy to friend. You become a child of God and you rejoice now at the coming judgment. You don't fear it. There's praise and salvation coming and you're excited about it. And that's why the stanza, the first stanza, I titled it, The Lord is Savior. Listen to how the psalmist is praising God for the salvation. He says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. How marvelous that he saves like this. When I read this, several things jumped out at me. I said the overarching theme is this. Once you are his, Christ will never forsake you. There's so much good news in this first stanza. You can see why the psalmist is praising the Lord. First, it's his hands and his arm that saves, not mine. He saves me. We're not working together. This isn't a tandem operation. He saves me and he saves you. And that's good news. Because what if I stop believing? What if I sin? What if I let go? What if I fall? What if I fail? Then what? The answer is, did you save yourself with your big right arm? Was it because of your strong grip that you grabbed hold of God and then he pulled you out? And because you held on so tight, you never let go. That's why you're saved. No, that's not what it says. That's not what the word says. He says that it's his hand and his arm that saves us. And the psalmist is praising God for it. You can't lose what you didn't earn. It was a gift. The Lord saved you. And you may be thinking to yourself, yeah, but that's crazy. I know myself. I mean, I'm going to fail. And I, I know I, I, I committed my life to Christ. But, you know, I look at my marriage and look at how I'm spending my money. And, you know, but this thing that I have in the, in the dark, this secret thing. Maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe, maybe the Lord's going to forsake me. You know, I, I got to be faithful to him, right? I got to be faithful. Otherwise, he's not going to love me anymore. Otherwise, he's going to let me go. Otherwise, he's going to cast me in the fire, right? Is that what it is? Is God's fellowship with you based on your love and faithfulness to him? Well, that's not what it says here in the verse 3. In verse 3, it says it's not my love and faithfulness he remembers, but it's his. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. When God looks at his unfaithful, unworthy, ragtag band of people, He remembers his love and faithfulness. This is who he is, the kind of guy he is. The Lord Jesus is loving and faithful all the way down to the bone. It is overflowing him like a never-ending fountain of grace. He's just grace upon grace. Look, if you could lose your salvation, you would. But it doesn't work that way. God chose you from from the foundations of the earth, from the beginning of time. He chose the billions and billions and billions of people that he's saving. The world that he's saving. And he came and saved you while you were his enemy. Jesus came into this world for you. 
He was beaten for you. He was mocked and scourged for you, humiliated and bled for you. He was murdered for you. And this is when you were his enemy. This is when he was your, this is when you were his enemy. How much love is that? He did this for you when you were completely opposed to him. How much more will he love you now that you are his friend? Now that in your heart of hearts, you say to him, yes, I'm still a sinner. Please forgive me again and please continue to transform me. I love you. I'm holding on to you. God, please. You see, it's his love and faithfulness that he remembers in his relationship and fellowship with you. This is marvelous. And this is why the psalmist praises it. This is why we don't fear the coming judgment. Because, because we know that someone who loves us so much when we were enemies is going to love us even more now that we're friends. Right? And you may think to yourself, but this isn't fair. I mean, if I'm basically forgiven for my sins, and we're all just forgiven for our sins, that's not fair. I mean, that would mean that anybody could be saved. I mean, Hitler could be saved, and he killed all those Jews. Are you saying that if Hitler was to confess his sins to the Lord at the moment he's about to die, that he'd be forgiven and he'd live forever with God in heaven? Yes. What? Jeffrey Dahmer? Yes. Some, some evil, you know, rapist, terrorist? Yes. All of them can be forgiven. But that's not fair. What about their crimes? What about their injustice? Well, now look who's all of a sudden holding up moral standards. The answer is, God is righteous. No, he's not righteous. He's not punishing our sin. That's not righteous. No, no, he's righteous. And as it says, verse 2, the Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He shows us that our salvation reveals his righteousness. How is God righteous if he's letting us sins go away? He's just forgiving us because we say that we trust him and we don't want to sin anymore. And we want to give him our life. The answer is, is because all the punishment that you deserve for your sin has been poured out. You died for your sin. You were punished for your sin. You were crucified for your sin in Christ. Imagine everybody who God will ever save. A multitude so big you can't count. More than the sand on the shores of the beaches and more than the stars in the sky. That many people. And now imagine all the sins that they've committed in their lives. And all the punishment and judgment that a holy God should pour out upon them. And God took all that wrath and poured it into a gigantic bowl. And then he poured it out upon the Lord Jesus 2,000 years ago on the cross. In ways that we will never know, the Lord Jesus drunk down every drop of God's wrath. And there is none left. It is finished. So yeah, God is just. Because he punished every single sin. Exactly how it should be punished. In Christ. And when he died, you died. And when he was buried, you were buried. And when he was raised from the dead, never to die again, never to face any sin, never to be stained by sin, you were raised pure and clean. But what about my sins tomorrow? They were punished 2,000 years ago. But what about my sins in five years? They were punished 2,000 years ago. So, so I'm forgiven? Yes. You mean I could just, I'm free? Yes. And then your heart erupts because you realize the love of God. You see the grace, the depth, the depth of God's love. How could anybody love like that? And you see what the Lord Jesus did for you. That's the righteousness of God. I have planned this out, God said. From the beginning of time, I did not punish the sins. I overlooked them so that they might all be poured out on my son, so that I could both justify you and be the judge, so that I could bring judgment justly and also mercy. In the cross, my justice and my mercy meet. That's the wisdom of God. 
That's the righteousness of God. And the psalmist says, it's marvelous. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. Look what he did. And this is not just for you. Notice that he says, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of God. God wants all the nations. It's not just for me and for CIV and for you. He wants all the nations. He's coming for the world. He loves the world. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He's coming for it all. And you get to play a part. The Lord destroyed Egypt in public so the world would know that he is God, that he is the judge, that he is the savior. He judged Egypt and he saved Israel. The Lord uh, publicly executed Jesus so that the world would see that he is the judge and he is the savior. And he has sent you and I out into this dark world to tell everybody, to tell them about the amazing grace of God, the judgment to come. The judgment that is in the past on the cross. The salvation that they can have. Their families can be healed. Their fear and shame and guilt can be washed away. They can be given power to be transformed and to conquer sin. And to become more and more and more like their Father in heaven. They will never be condemned. They'll never be separated. Never forsaken. Who wouldn't want that salvation? But in order to know the good news, they have to know the bad news. And so we have to be courageous and willing to tell people honestly about the judgment to come. But make, make no mistake, he's coming for this world. And we get to play a part. And this is why in the very first verse of Psalm 98, in the very first verse, the psalmist says, these are marvelous things. He picked that word carefully. Marvelous. What is the definition of marvelous? A wonder. That which arrests the attention. Causes a person to stand up and gaze in awe. Look at that. Look at that. That's marvelous. That's the salvation and the judgment and the righteousness and the love, the loyal love, the faithfulness of God that we've been thinking about together this morning. Do you see it? Do you see how marvelous it is? Now, how should we respond? That stanza too. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous songs and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with a lyre, with a lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of horns. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Let the sea roar and all that fill it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy. Everything should be praising and singing together. God wants us to make some noise. We're a rowdy bunch. Christians are singing. Christians are happy. Christians are celebrating. We're loud because of the salvation that God is bringing us. He wants us to make noise. Sunday's not a funeral. Sunday is a celebration because we have seen the marvelous things that God has done. He wants all of us together. He wants my heart and my thoughts and my emotions and my body and my family and everybody harmonized 
singing the truth, singing what's right, singing what's glorious, singing what's excellent to the Lord. This is the only fitting tribute. And that's not enough. He doesn't just want singing. He wants harp and brass and timbrel. And he wants more and more and more. And bring in some keys and bring in a drum and somebody get a violin. He wants it to get louder and louder. And that's not enough. He wants every animal to roar. He wants the otters and the walruses and the gray white sharks and the octopus. And he wants the rhinos and the sharks and the lions. And he wants the mountains and the rivers. He wants everything to praise his son, Jesus, because that's how worthy he is. Even that isn't worthy, isn't fitting, isn't enough to express how marvelous what God has done. Do you feel what happens when you really think about this psalm? Do you feel your heart lifted? That's what psalms do. That's what they do. When you meditate on them, you end up singing hallelujah. So now, do you want to sing Psalm 98? Do you want to be someone who can sing Psalm 98? Do you want to be loved by God like this? Do you want to feel the joy and hope and assurance of your salvation that the Holy Spirit gives? Then here are three things you can do. Here are your next steps. Number one, for those of you who are still in your sins and separated from God, his enemy facing his coming judgment in fear, you have hope. Here's the good news. You can be saved, reconciled to God. You must confess and repent of all of your sins and give all of your life to Jesus Christ. No one knows the day or hour that they're going to die. The Bible says today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow and not next week, right now. And if you're watching this and you're not a Christian, it's time to decide. It's time to receive the free love and grace of God. And the way you do that is you say, it's true. I am a sinner. I know myself and I know God is good and I know he's holy and I want a relationship with him. And I know that I can't be like, look how good I am. And so I agree. I confess. I'm a sinner. I don't want to sin anymore. I don't want to live my life as if I'm my own God. I want you to be my God. I don't know how that all works, but I, you're telling me you're going to save me, right? So save me. And when you pray in your heart, honestly, like this, that's it. You have passed from death to life. You are God's. And it doesn't matter how much you do this. He is never going to let you go. So receive Christ. Number two, if you are a Christian and you're so grateful for his love, then don't be afraid to tell people about him. We have the words of eternal life. We can give life to our neighbors. Tell everyone about the grace of God, his salvation, his judgment, his loyal love, his righteousness. Tell them about all of it. Ask God for opportunity and share it boldly. Don't be afraid to point out to them that they're going to die as we all are going to die. And when they do, they will face God. And when they face God, they can be loved and forgiven for all of their sins if Jesus is standing right beside them with his arm around them. And the way they get that is they receive him as Lord right now. But when they die, salvation is over. The time for choosing is past. And that's a loving thing to say to people. If they got stage four cancer and the doctor says, well, I don't want to tell them that because that's going to really make them mad. That's not loving. I'd rather be loving and thought cruel than be cruel and thought loving. And so should you. So let's be bold. Let's tell our friends and our family and our neighbors. 
Let's bring people into the kingdom of God because the gospel is powerful. It works. People hear it and they come to Christ. You did, right? Believe what God says. He will do the work of convincing people. It's just your job to deliver the mail, not edit the mail. Let's see God bring in lots of people into the kingdom through our church, Church in the Valley. And then number three, sing your heart out to the Lord today. I want to invite you to come and worship in person at Church in the Valley so you can sing with all of us. But you can sing to the Lord. You've got a phone. You've got a playlist. You can sing to him old songs and new. Some of you are musical. Write songs, new songs to the Lord. Call people to praise him. Tell them why they should praise him. And then call them to praise him again. You fill in the details. Talk about God's goodness to you. It's a great exercise. And some of you watching this are young, you're musical, and God may raise you up to write songs that we sing here at CIV, that the whole church may sing across the country, across the world. He wants a new song. Let's write it for him. This is why we gather on Sundays. When we worship on Sundays, it's not just before each other in a room. It's before the Lord and King. That's why the psalmist says that in verse 6. He's very key to point out that when we're worshiping like this, it's in front of the king. And that's what we find out in the New Testament. When we gather in faith, we're not just in a room in Ontario. We are in faith in the presence of the king. We're in the heavenly Jerusalem. We're on Mount Zion. We're with the angels and those that have died in the Lord but who are alive with him. We're with the Father and the Son. We're worshiping with the billions of people around the world on Sundays who are worshiping the Lord Jesus. That's what you see in the scriptures. Hebrews chapter 12. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gatherings. The angels are here worshiping with us. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's my mom. That's my, that's my grandma. That's your loved ones who have gone forward and are with the Lord now. They're there worshiping too. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. When we gather and praise the Lord, like Psalm 98 says, we're doing this. We're doing this in a, an amazing way. And it's not just us. It's all of God's people, his whole kingdom gathered to worship in the heavenly Jerusalem. That's good to keep in mind and remember. What a beautiful thought when you gather on Sundays, when you're tired and weary. We're going to the throne room of God together to sing praises, to bring our offerings, to confess our sins, to hear his word, to be cleansed. And then when we're done, we go back out into that dark world to seek and save the lost. Between Sunday and Sunday, we go out as missionaries to tell people about the grace of God. We're pumped, we're renewed, we're ready to build and grow and fight so that the kingdom of God may be on earth as it is in heaven. And while we go, we sing. We sing psalms like Psalm 98 because we have seen that the Lord has done marvelous things. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray praises to you. Praise you for your salvation, for your judgment, for your righteousness. Praise you for your loyal love. Father, save us from our sins. Collect into your kingdom those who are putting their faith into you for the first time right now. Strengthen and build up the faith of those who are weak and unstable. Help us to bring into the light any sins that we're hiding, to confess them and believe what you say, that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just and you'll forgive us our sins and you'll purify us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we believe what you say. 
And Father, we pray you pour out salvation in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our city. We pray that you give a great revival to our nation, that you turn us back from our sins, that you have mercy and pull us back from the darkness. We thank you that you showed us marvelous things today. And we pray that you'd help us to sing all this week. In Jesus' name, amen.